Numbers chapter 33, this is the the account of the, the journeyings of the children of Israel, and it can seem pretty, pretty long and boring, all these difficult names. Now, first of all, I'd like to observe that they moved only 33 times, according to this chapter, in those first 39 years of wandering. So on that basis, you could say they stayed on average just over a year in each of the places that they, they rested in. But looking at this in a bit more detail, you'll see that uh, the, uh, the first eight or so of those journeyings are within the first few months of leaving Egypt. And in the 40th, in the final year, Israel moved nine times, and at least eight of those moves are actually in the last seven months of the 40th year. Look at uh, verse 38 and so forth. So the whole thing opens up when we realize that we were in Egypt, we passed through the water of baptism, through the Red Sea. We didn't come immediately into the kingdom of God, we came into the wilderness. And therefore, this outline of their journeyings speaks of our journey from baptism towards God's kingdom. And you could argue, therefore, from the way that this journey was structured, that the, the tempo of God's activity increased towards the end of their journey. And I think it does increase also in our lives towards the end of our journey as if God is almost desperate to get us ready for entry into his kingdom and that is particularly comforting I think to older people or anyone who feels very much the uh, limited period that they have left in this world that it's not as if God has forgotten you because everyone else apparently has and because everything else has slowed down in life. It, God's temper of activity with you and with all of us, because we are all men and women on borrowed time, uh, the temper of that activity is actually increasing. And I think you also see it on a bigger kind of historical level when you look at how God has worked with his people as a whole, that we as the body of Christ, I do think that in the final run-up to the return of the Lord, God will be working and is working very intensively to prepare us for that entry into his kingdom. Because after all, if Jesus comes in our lifetime, as I guess we've all often reflected, we will be the only generation that does not taste of death. If Jesus comes right now, you and I will come to the day of judgment, be judged, and by his grace have eternal life. We will actually never die. Now, in order for us to be prepared, therefore, for that great honor, and to be the only generation that hasn't actually had to learn from death, personal death, and facing it, then it seems to me that God will be now working very intensely in our lives to prepare us for that entry of, into his kingdom. Now, verse 2 I'd like to focus on. And uh, the Hebrew seems to read something like this. Moses recorded the starting points, the AV says their goings out, uh, of their various marches as directed by the Lord. Their marches by starting point were as follows. So each stage of the journey, or departure, or goings out, was a starting point. And it's been so truly said that each day is the first day of the rest of our lives. That in this journey that we're on, there is a sense of newness of life breaking through. That we are moving on, as uh, Exodus 17 verse 1 says, they moved on each time at the commandment of the Lord. So then, 
these stages in life are definitely being arranged by God according to his word. When I say his word, I don't necessarily mean the Bible. I mean his command from heaven to move on. And of course, we, in, our, in the mutuality of our relationship with God, we, from our side, move on according to our understanding of his word. And yet, there is also, in a sense, a word from heaven to move us on. So then, I would like to just reflect a bit about this idea of a journey, because life is a journey towards God's kingdom for those who are baptized. But the, the, the metaphor of journey has become incredibly popular in the last few years. Oh, he's on a journey. Ah, oh, yeah, well, he's on that part of his journey. He's on that stage of his journey. And I'd like to just share an incident that happened a couple of years ago when I was staying in a family that for a weekend and there'd been a big event at the church on the Saturday and on the Sunday, well, there was the church meeting, breaking of bread and so forth, and kids were a bit sick, so I stayed in, looked after the kids while Cindy went to the meeting, and there was a, a number of people staying in this family, quite a big house, and uh, we were all baptized believers. There was a woman, I guess, in her 40s, uh, who'd been baptized, and her mother said to me, oh, well, so-and-so, she, she won't be going to uh, to the meeting. She'll stay behind uh, with you. Uh, she's on an incredible journey. She's just on an incredible journey. Uh, but at this part of her journey, she's uh, not really into uh, going to the meeting anymore. She's moved on beyond that. Well, there I was down in the kitchen lounge area playing with the kids, trying to entertain them a bit. And um, well, she got up late and uh, came down, made herself a coffee, and sat the whole Sunday morning watching some totally mindless show uh, on the TV. And I, <laughs> I was thinking, well, you could have been out of church. Um, is this part of your journey? I mean, I didn't say that. Um, but uh, it, it did... Uh, occur to me that we can justify simply living and, and existing, watching some mindless show on the telly, as, oh, I'm on a journey. And there's a lot of people who let life happen to them rather than living. As again, somebody else, not this person, but somebody else said to me, oh, well, you know, I was young and I grew up and, uh, oh, this fellow said he loved me, so he, he married me. And then, well, uh, he wanted to have kids and, well, I wasn't against, so we had kids and then he divorced me. And uh, then I met another chap and he, he, he said he loved me and so, you know, he married me. Oh, stop. Yeah. Life, according to your version of it, just happened to you. And this is the problem, that you can exist and not really move anywhere. So the metaphor of journey is maybe very comforting when we're trying to be kind about our maybe not particularly spiritual friends, uh, etc., and say, oh yeah, they're on a journey, everyone's on a journey. Well, you could look at it another way, you know, because the, the biblical version of humanity, or the biblical take on humanity, is not particularly charming, that we are... Uh, basically in the way that we die as animals, although we are made in the image of God, and as the animals die, so do we. Unless we are in Christ and we have the hope of resurrection from the dead and eternal life. But that eternity was made known in the gospel. Uh, it, it's not something inherent within us. We don't have immortal soul, etc. And sadly, this is what happens to a lot of people. Their lives are just existence, just basically 
enjoying themselves as far as they can, uh, existing, working, eating, uh, breathing, etc. And life, in a sense, is a very animal-level existence without God and without the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that, because Egypt, the Egyptians, were just left stuck there in Egypt. It was Israel who had left all that and gone through the Red Sea and were on this journey that was intended to lead them to God's kingdom. Now, verse 2 in the AV says, Moses wrote their goings out, plural. That seems to imply that each stage of the journey was a going out from Egypt. That, in a sense, we are, if we're responding rightly, we are being led progressively away from the flesh, away from the pointless life of slavery, away from this world which is the embodiment and enshrining of that emptiness of life, and closer towards God's kingdom. And although it may be two steps backward and three forward at times, that is definitely God's intention to lead us forward in real, meaningful progress and transformation of human life in practice. But we know from uh, Acts 7.39 that in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Ezekiel 20 says they took the idols of Egypt with them. And again, Acts 7 says that they took up the tabernacle of their god Remphan as well as the tabernacle of Yahweh as they travelled through the wilderness. They smuggled the idols through the Red Sea hidden in their clothing, Ezekiel implies. And yet they were being led to go out each time they moved forward in the wilderness, even if it was a step backwards, it was still a going out from Egypt, externally. And here we see, I'm afraid, what can so easily happen in our church life. We are in a club, in that sense, we're in a, a society that is Christian, and we go to church, and we go to the meeting, and so forth, and we are externally moving forward, but actually in our hearts turning back. So again, the metaphor of journey, I think, has got to be used carefully. Now, why then do we have this chapter 33 in such detail, all these places, which to subsequent generations, just like to us, would have all been a little bit meaningless because they're all pretty remote places out in the scrub of, of Sinai. Now, why? I'd like to just uh, draw your attention to Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you may like to look there, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you. And this word remember, that the Hebrew really means to recount or to mark. You shall recount all the way which Yahweh your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you to prove you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So Deuteronomy 8.2 says that they were to recount the stages of their journey. And this is Deuteronomy, the second law. This is at the end of their wilderness journeys. And then when it's finished and they're going to go into the land, Moses says, when you're in the land, you shall recount all the way that Yahweh led you here. And that's why we've got Numbers 33. And it could be that that Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, you shall recount all the way that Yahweh led you, is actually a command to Israel to recite Numbers 33. Now, I'm not a great one for types and all that, but I have to say this, that Israel going through the Red Sea is programmatic in later scripture as a, a type, as a symbol of our 
baptism, our exit from the world, and our beginning of a journey through the desert of this world to God's kingdom. There's no doubt about that. And taking that thought further, does this not perhaps imply that when we are in God's kingdom, you shall recount the way that you got here? Just as they were to recite, it seems to me, Numbers 33, which is why we have this, and although it might be meaningless to anybody else apart from the person who actually went to all these places, um, which are all, as I say, strange-sounding little uh, spots in the desert, uh, to anybody else, so it will be with us in God's kingdom that we will look back and remember the way in uh, this very brief opportunity that we have to walk that journey. So, at the longest, I suppose, from the point of baptism to the point of falling asleep in Christ, it's what, 60 years, 70 years at the most? Uh, for most of us, far less, I guess. And we shall remember all the way that Yahweh our God led us. So, what's going on in your life right now is God leading you towards his kingdom, and you shall remember this day and yesterday and the day before, and last week, and the, the, the hell you went through three years ago, and the grief you went through four years ago, you shall remember every step of the way that you took. And we'll realize that every stage in our life was at the commandment of the Lord, as Exodus 17.1 says, they moved forward at the commandment of the Lord. Now, the question is whether you can split your life up into uh, different stages. And there are expositors who have attempted to do this. They've looked at the Hebrew meaning of all these places that they stopped at and said, Ah, oh, yeah, in every human life there are these uh, 39 stages that you pass through. And there's this, you know, the, uh, the graves of lust, and then there's the palm trees, and that means this and that. And in every human life, it works out in that pattern. Well, I'd be interested to hear from anyone who really can interpret Numbers 33 like that, because I, I've had a look at that, and I've read what other people have said, and I try to, try to work it out myself, but I, I just don't think that that's possible. I don't think that's intended for us to figure out in this life. Um, I don't think that you can split your life up into those stages, but uh, in the sense that every Hebrew word here has a meaning, and you are led from this experience to that type of experience, and, and so on. I don't think so. But what you can say, I think, in outline terms, is that there are stages to your life. That's pretty clear. You may not be able to analyze 39 of them, but because we haven't finished yet for most of us, um, but... Uh, I think you can start to get the sense that, yes, there are stages. That, yes, although, like if you map these journeys, sometimes they're going back on themselves uh, in order to go forward. It, yes, there are those stages when I went back to go forward. And, yes, it was all led by God. It was at his word that I did that. So, although in this life we cannot always attach meaning to event... Why did this happen? Why did she die when she did? Or why did I miss that opportunity? Or why did that happen? Uh, we, we cannot necessarily directly attach that meaning to the event, but it seems to me that the, the meaning is there. It's only when you look back, and that is from the kingdom perspective, 
that you will be able to realize that yes that was necessary because that was how I got here and I'm certain that we will have that sense in the kingdom of God how did I get here I who was just flesh and blood born of my mother how did I get here it's all gonna seem a little bit bizarre because even the power of an endless life and with the nature of God that doesn't mean there are no questions that does not mean that there is not a, a struggle for understanding because you see that in the angels who also have God's nature and so then we shall look back and then we shall understand and the comfort is then in outline terms that everything that we're going through in this life does have ultimate meaning and it is that sense of meaninglessness which is so tragic and so difficult for so many people to live with this is why people fall into depression this is why people have all sorts of psychological problems uh, abuse problems uh, etc because there is no sense of meaning and if you ever read Viktor Frankl who's a Auschwitz survivor uh, man's search for meaning uh, this really um, as it is this is the problem uh, in so much of human life you know you can go through a concentration camp and come out the other end this is his point but man's search for meaning and so what why did I survive when the vast majority didn't why am I not even a one percenter but a you know a point one point zero zero one percenter as a survivor yeah okay I survived but so what man's search for meaning and that meaning is there in our lives but the point I think of all this is that you don't perceive that until the very end of the journey but it is all being written it is all being written and worked out so then they they come at the end and he says verse 53 I'm reading from the AV you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land for I have given you the land to possess it so a very unfortunate translation because the Hebrew words for dispossess and possess are the same you shall possess the land the inhabitants of is uh, not in the original you shall possess the land because I've given you the land to possess it it sounds like it's stating uh, the obvious an axiom that uh, you shall possess the land because I've given it to you the point is I think that God knew and Moses knew that it wasn't quite so obvious the land was in front of them and they had said before when they came to it the first time we don't want it we want to go back to Egypt no we don't want it and this is a, an incredible feature of humanity that faced with the eternity of God's kingdom and every assurance that God wants us to be there and has prepared a place in the Father's house for us and the fact that Jesus died and rose again to as it were commend the righteousness of God to us to assure us God gave assurance to all men by raising Jesus from the dead despite all that we still are slow to believe now I know the death and resurrection of the Lord was multifactorial in its reasons but one of them one of them and a pretty big one according to the New Testament was to confirm the promises to the fathers which were the promises quite simply of salvation in the land in God's kingdom when you read Paul's words that, that God commends his love to us you think well does it need any commendation well it obviously does because we're so slow to get it so one and I, I stress it's only one but one of the reasons for the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus 
was to persuade us that really and truly God wants to give you his kingdom. And therefore we have this apparently obvious axiom being stated, possess the land because I've given it to you, to possess it. It's like, come inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus is going to say that to people at the day of judgment, as if, look, I love you, it's okay, come and take it. Almost as if there is a reservation there, even up to the day of judgment. Is this really for me? Um, it's like you know, giving somebody a present, maybe a child, a poor child who's never been given a present in their life, and you say, look, this is, this is for you. No, 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 I don't have any money. This one little little boy told me when I was trying to give him something nice once, uh, no, 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 I, I don't have any money. My mum hasn't got any money. My mum's on the social. <laughs> no, I, I just said I'm giving it to you. And, ah, uh, yeah, my mum's on the social. You know? And, and, and that's exactly how it is with us. Here is the kingdom. Oh, no, yeah, look, God, you know what? I'm a sinner. <laughs> I know, I'm giving it to you. And this is where the good news is almost too good news. It's almost too good to believe. And when Jesus says, come inherit the kingdom, I, I wonder whether he didn't have in mind the whole theme of Deuteronomy, and indeed here at the end of Numbers, come on, come and get it. Look, I, I've done it for you. I'm giving it to you. Take it, please. And it is, in a sense, it took the death of Jesus to attempt to persuade humanity that he is so deadly serious in that offer. Now, verse 54 seems to state the obvious again, when we read, Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falls. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. Particularly, every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falls. Well, sure, he gave, God gave Israel different areas of the land to inherit, and uh, he says, well, you're going to have what I've given you. Uh, you. You could read it in the same uh, vein as what I've just been saying, that take it, please. Or it could be a sort of a sense that God had, a false sense, that they would not be particularly happy with the lot that he gave them, and that they would seek to maybe exchange it for something else, or swap it, or... Oh yeah, I don't want that bit. Oh, can I have Benjamin's bit? Or oh, can I live in uh, can I live in that bit of land that belongs to uh, to Ephraim or to, to Dan or whoever it was? Um, <clears throat> and God is saying, look, what I've given you, please take. Each of us has been given a a different lot in God's kingdom. It is not simply that the kingdom of God equals immortality. Just as Israel had a different part of the land to inherit. So the amazing thing is that God has prepared a slightly different inheritance for each of us, uniquely different. The kingdom of God for me shall be something slightly different to what it is for you. And we're not just going to be existing in the kingdom of God, letting eternity happen to us, sitting passively. Because when you think about it, that would be unbearable. Eternal passivity would just be awful. We are called to do something and be something utterly unique for God forever. And he says, look, just accept that. And don't seem, seek to squirm out of it. Now, in this life, you can see that happening, because each of us 
is not only physically unique, we have a unique uh, DNA, we have a unique personality, no human being is identical to another, but also we have God working with us in a totally personalized way. If you like, he's, you know, through the angels, our personal manager. Um, really and truly working personally on a personalized, tailor-made uh, scheme to prepare us for that eternal work. And yet the, the tendency is to say, oh, I can't cope being in this situation. I can't cope being in this uh, environment or in this marriage or in this church or whatever. And people are always trying to kick over the traces and, oh, I want total freedom from this. And I'm not saying on one hand that you must stay in an abusive situation. Not at all. There is the, the time to move on. Uh, which, of course, you get very clearly from the account of these journeyings. Um, but, on the other hand, we also have got to be aware that there is a natural human boredom factor, and we, we like a change of scene, and we want to move on, and we're never happy with what we've got. The grass is always greener on the other side. If only I wasn't married to him. If only I was free from the kids. If only this, if only that, if only we lived in such and such country, if only we belong to such and such ecclesia, if only we live nearer to uh, so-and-so, oh, if only we had more money, if only we didn't have uh, this or that. You know, there are the ties that bind in this world, and God works through them. And God has given each of us a unique position in life, a unique set of relationships, set of problems, set of grief, set of issues that appeared unbearable, and as I say, I'm not saying that you should not get out of an abusive situation or relationship. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I'm saying is that also the endless desire to keep on moving on, uh, that can be uh, the same as Israel being unhappy with the lot of their inheritance. To put it in New Testament terms, there are good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God has set up people in your life and situations, a work for you to do for him. And I can only urge you, if you don't sense what that is, to pray very earnestly that you will be shown that. Because that is what ennobles human life. That is what it gives life morning by morning, um, meaning that I want to carry on with this. Because I've got to do this. Oh yeah, I've got to do that. I must move on doing this or that or the other. Because that, yes, that, that is clearly the work that is cut out for me. Now, it may be in your relationship with persons, with certain individuals. It may be in preaching the gospel to somebody. It may be in caring for somebody, spiritually, maybe also physically, materially, in helping them to God's kingdom. It may be in supporting something. It may be... Um, writing something, maybe addressing a certain issue, God has given each of us something specific to do, even in this life, because he will give us th specific things to do for eternity. And the, the key, or one of the big keys in our relationship with God, is to figure this out. And the earlier in life we figure it, the better. So ask God, please do this, if you're not clear what your callings are, what your talents are, what his intentions are for you, what his hopes are for you, ask him to show you. And I believe he would love to do that.